Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and I and a group of men have been meeting for the last six months to discuss the possibility and work out the particulars of what it would take to start a Reformed church in the Lewis County area of Washington. We want a Reformed church that is biblically faithful, faithful to Christ, faithful to His Word, and faithful to the sovereignty of God. We've been recording these meetings for a number of reasons, one of which is so that we can invite other men and women to join us in this quest, to join us in this vision, and give them some context for what we've talked about, where we are, and as a group, where our convictions um, really align, and maybe some of those areas where our convictions don't align as much. Our first few meetings centered around what is Reformed theology in general, and then we moved into the doctrines of grace, which is basically an exploration of God's sovereignty when it's pushed into all the corners of life. If you truly believe in God's sovereignty, then these this is the theological framework for embracing the sovereignty of God view. We have, for the past two weeks now, moved into a different realm of theology, which is eschatology. Now, eschatology is simply the study of last things or end times or the end of the age. Jesus teaches a lot about it, and so we want to be on the same page as a church. If we're going to plant a church, we want to make sure we understand where everyone is at in terms of eschatology, and if we can have common ground and if we can have a common vision, that would be ideal. So we're going to turn it over to R.C. Sproul, and we're going to start with part one of a 12-part series on eschatology, which is part of his book, The The Last Days According to Jesus. In this teaching, he's titled Crisis in Eschatology. Following R.C.'s teaching will be the roundtable discussion uh, between the, the men here in Lewis County who would like to see or be a part of a Lewis County uh, Reformed Church plant. Now, One of the developments that has happened here in the last week is that we actually created a website to not only host these Reformation Roundtable discussions, but to also act as kind of a central point for putting together the different ideas surrounding this vision of starting a Lewis County Reformed Church. And so the website is lewiscounty.church. Instead of .com, it's lewiscounty.church. And that's where these uh, you can always check that to, to leave comments or, or to use the contact form. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing, go to lewiscounty.church to find out more. Thanks very much for being with us, and I hope you enjoy the teaching. In this session, we're going to begin a series in the field of eschatology. Now, I know for some of you that term sounds a little bit technical, but it's a, a, a common term in theology and eschatology is a subdivision of systematic theology that is particularly concerned about the last things or the future things or what we call the last days coming from the Greek word for last times. Now when we enter the arena of eschatology we enter a fascinating Uh, subject, but one in which there's very little consensus among Christians. There's probably more disagreement about matters relating to eschatology among Christian people 
than among all of the other doctrines that tend to divide us uh, put together. And because of that, there has been something of a crisis in our time in terms of trying to understand the teaching of Scripture with respect to future prophecy. Now, I need to alert you at the beginning that as I canvass some of these issues of eschatology in this series, I'm going to be taking a position on eschatology that is a minority report. And in fact, it'll be a viewpoint on eschatology that many, if not most of you who are uh, hearing this, will be hearing for the first time, perhaps. And it may even come as a shock to you to hear some of the positions that I take because my own thinking on eschatological matters has undergone uh, a transition from earlier times. I've been uh, through various stages in my own understanding of these things. And even where I come down today, I come down not with a fierce dogmatism because that's a dangerous thing to do with respect to eschatology because the subject itself is so difficult. I'm going to be following basically the structure and pattern of the content that I set forth in this book entitled The Last Days According to Jesus, and then subtitled When, when Did Jesus Say He Would Return? So, as I said, <coughs> there's less of a consensus in eschatology than perhaps any other aspect of theology. And we repeatedly hear about debates concerning the time and nature of the millennium, which is predicted in the book of Revelation, the question of the relationship of Old Testament Israel to the New Testament church, issues over the identity of this mysterious figure that we call the Antichrist, questions about the nature and the time of the rapture, and the relationship between the return of Jesus and the biblical concept of the rapture. Now these are the kinds of issues that I assume most of us are aware of. But what I want to uh, focus attention on, not just today, but throughout this series, is another crisis of eschatology that is often overlooked or ignored within evangelical circles of the Christian church, which crisis, I believe, is the, the most serious crisis of all with respect to our understanding of future prophecy. And that crisis has to do with the question of credibility. And it has to do with the credibility of two distinct objects. First of all, it has to do with the credibility and trustworthiness of the Bible itself, as I will try to show you. And secondly, it has to do, even more importantly, with the credibility of Jesus himself. And that's why I'm concerned to look at 
what Jesus taught about the last things. I won't be covering many of the common issues of eschatology, interpretations, for example, of the book of Daniel and the 70 weeks in the Old Testament and that sort of thing, because I'm going to be focusing more on the New Testament and specifically the teaching of Jesus. For this reason, the point that is often overlooked among evangelicals is that for the last 200 years, there has been an unprecedented assault against the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Now, it's not that there was never a criticism of the Bible prior to the Enlightenment, but since the Enlightenment, there has been a radical escalation of criticism leveled against the believability, the credibility of the biblical documents. And that attack has not come simply from outside the church, but for the most part, in the last century or so, the guns of criticism have been leveled against the authority of the Bible from inside the church. Now, there are many reasons why the higher critics level their attacks against the authenticity of sacred Scripture. But far and away, the number one central point of attack of higher criticism against the uh, inspiration and authority of the Bible focuses on matters relating to eschatology. It's been said that two-thirds of the content of the New Testament deals with future prophecy. And if that prophecy is suspect, with respect to criticism, then, of course, that raises serious questions about our whole understanding of the nature and credibility of the Bible. I'll just give you a little personal uh, uh, anecdote in terms of my own background in studies. When I was a seminary student in an institution that was not known for its passion for Christian orthodoxy, in which I was exposed to most of the radical theories of our day concerning the Bible, it seemed like there was no end to the professors criticizing the integrity of the Bible, particularly with respect to the predictions found in the New Testament regarding the coming of Christ and future events that surrounded it. As I say, the critics focused on these issues in their assault on the uh, trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, even more significant than the question of the credibility of the Bible is, of course, the credibility of Christ himself. Uh, even outside the church, there are those who, though they do not accept the deity of Christ, will affirm that he was a great teacher or that he was even a prophet. But when we examine the future prophecies of Jesus, the critics come to these and say that the prophecies that Jesus made with respect to the future did not come to pass within the specific time frame 
that he said they would come to pass. And if that is true, namely, if the prophecies of Jesus fail to come to pass in the time frames in which he said they would come to pass, that would, bottom line, reduce Jesus to the role of false prophet. So let me just pause for a second here and say, my two biggest concerns as I approach these questions of New Testament prophecies are to deal with the critical attack against the Bible on the one hand and against the teaching of Jesus himself on the other hand. Let me illustrate this uh, problem as we discover it, not simply among biblical scholars, which we will look at later, <clears throat> but as it is uh, summarized for us in the famous criticism leveled at Christianity by the British philosopher Bertrand Russell. Russell published a little book entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that book, he gave a series of criticisms against historic Christianity, against arguments for the existence of God, and so on. But he focused his attention on the central importance of Jesus to historic Christianity. He came at this problem saying that in his opinion, religion in general and Christianity in, in particular is positively harmful. The net impact on the human race and the uh, safety of culture and civilization of religion, according to Russell, has been negative. All the religious wars and the hostilities and the fighting and the prejudice and the witch hunts and all of that that are part of the blemish of church history, he uh, puts all together in one package and says the, the, the bottom line is that the net result of religion is harmful. And he said that he thinks that it was doubtful if there ever was a Jesus of Nazareth. That is, from a historical perspective, Russell doubted whether Jesus ever lived. Now, he's not alone in that, as we have seen many critical theories, particularly in the 20th century and the various quests for the historical Jesus, that have raised questions about whether Jesus is completely mythological and an invention of the biblical writers and never really existed in space and time. And we've seen the radical criticism of the Jesus seminar even in our own day that uh, uh, play around the edges of this kind of thinking. Yet, at the same time, Bertrand Russell made a distinction between the, the real historical Jesus, which he doesn't think we can know, and the Jesus that is presented to us in the literature of the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. Now, he did have some good things to say about Jesus. He had a certain degree of respect for the moral character of Jesus, at least the Jesus who appears in, uh, in the New Testament documents. You know, I find that somewhat fascinating as a parenthesis because even the most uh, fierce critics of Christianity find it difficult 
to attack the personal integrity of the Jesus of the New Testament. One, on one occasion, George Bernard Shaw was criticizing Jesus uh, for teaching one of the things he taught, and he said, on this particular occasion, Jesus didn't uh, behave like a Christian. And I thought that was somewhat funny, that when he was leveling this criticism, he couldn't think of any higher standard by which to judge Jesus than the standard of Jesus himself. But beyond that, Bertrand Russell said that though the, the Christ of the Gospels displays a high ethical and moral character, he does not display a great deal of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? That this one who has been regarded as the greatest teacher who ever trod the earth was considered by Bertrand Russell to be not particularly wise. Now, his question regarding the wisdom of Jesus focused chiefly on Jesus' teaching about the future. Let me give you a quote from Bertrand Russell, where Russell says, and again I quote, he, that is Jesus, certainly thought that his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. Jesus certainly thought that his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of the people who were living at that time. That's the chief criticism of Bertrand Russell. And I might add that that is the chief criticism of the biblical critics and the biblical scholars of the last 200 years. Namely, that Jesus thought and taught that he would return, that he would appear, that he would come again, that his parousia, his coming or manifestation of himself would occur within a certain time frame, a time frame that was restricted to the first century and to the context of no more than 40 years from the time that he predicted it. Now, the three texts that most scholars make reference to, and all of which were referred to by Bertrand Russell in his criticism of the New Testament at this point, are these. First of all, the statement that Jesus made to his disciples in Matthew 10:23, you shall not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Now here, Jesus says that they, namely the disciples, would not finish their missionary outreach beyond the sphere of all of the cities of Israel before the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is a title, obviously, that is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He's talking clearly about himself here. Until the Son of Man be come. Now again, how long did it take the early church 
to finish their mission of spreading the gospel across the city of Israel long before the end of the first century. It certainly hasn't taken up till the modern day for that mission to have been completed. And so here is a time frame that Jesus gives. You won't go over all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man become. Now second, there are some standing here that shall not taste death until the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. Now again, Jesus is addressing his contemporaries and of those who were crowding around to hear him speak. He makes this statement, some of you, he's not talking about us, he's talking to the people who were there listening to his prophecies. He said to them, some of you will not taste death until <coughs> the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. Now, we're going to look at that later on. And, of course, I ask the question immediately, what does Jesus mean by coming into his kingdom? Was he referring to his second advent, or was he referring to some other event? That's one of the questions that we will examine. But for now, just remember that this is the second uh, text that uh, uh, Bertrand Russell cites as, uh, as evidence of the failure of Jesus' prophecies to come to pass. The third one, which is perhaps the most problematic of all, and the one that we will be taking great pains to examine in this series, is the statement that we find in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 30, in which Jesus declared to his disciples, after he had talked in great detail about his coming in glory, that he said, quote, This generation will by no means pass away until all of these things take place. This generation will not pass away until all of these things be fulfilled or come to pass. Now, what do you do with that? The way in which uh, uh, evangelical scholars have handled these time frame references uh, have uh, been in many cases far less than satisfying. It's certainly not satisfying to the critics who say that the plain and obvious meaning of Jesus' words in these texts are that he intended to manifest himself to come again in glory within the framework of no longer than a generation. And in Hebrew terms, a generation is approximately 40 years. Now, in addition to these three critical texts, Russell and others point to a host of other statements in the Scriptures that indicate that the early church, the apostolic community, and certainly the Apostle Paul, that these writers all had a sense of urgency about the nearness or the imminence 
of the coming of Christ. And yet, according to the critics, those things that Christ predicted would take place within a span of 40 years have not taken place even to this day. The book of Revelation, which is the favorite uh, source for speculation about future matters and the return of Jesus, also contains time frame references that we'll look at that speak about those things that must shortly come to pass. And if the book of Revelation in its, uh, its majority of its content is referring to the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ and his final appearing in history, it's hard to see, since it's been 2,000 years since the book was written, uh, in any way that we examine this, that that which was promised to take place shortly can hardly take 2,000 years and still be considered shortly unless we spiritualize these words and talk about a day in the Lord's sight as though a thousand years and so it's only been two days since the prophecy has been given and so on. But in light of the teaching of the documents of the New Testament, it is clear that the early church, the early Christian community had this urgent sense of expectation. And, of course, the critics say that when time began to pass and these things did not occur as had been predicted, certain adjustments were made to their expectation so that as the later books of the New Testament appear, there is more room left open for a long gap in history before the times of fulfillment take place. But that's the kind of thing that we're going to be looking at here. But the major concern of this series will be to focus on how we understand these time frame references that people have used to criticize both the credibility of the Bible and the credibility of our Lord Himself. It, it seemed interesting. I've never had a discussion with somebody outside of Christianity, and maybe it's because the conversations that he's having are people of academia that are really like, hey, I'm going to attack Christianity from this angle. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation where somebody has attacked the deity of Christ based on eschatological grounds uh, I mean most of the time it's uh, most of the time it feels far more superficial <laughs> in the would you say that it seems like the general public's knowledge of Christ is very superficial sure and so it's kind of more like they seem like as a magic man you know like we're trying to convince them to believe in a magic man and they're like uh, you know I don't believe in science kind of thing um, and uh so, like, they, they would just be ignorant of even, like, to reputable arguments against Christianity or, you know, what, what, yeah. what academia, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess I was just curious about that, because, I mean, he's like, well, we're going to attack this because this has been leveled against, against this, which is great. I've just never personally heard anybody outside of 
RC, who just presented, who was it? Shop? Bertrand Russell. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, the, the only way I push back on that a little bit is that um, liberalism, like theological liberalism, not political liberalism, mm-hmm. but theological liberalism is something that is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we don't see it usually because we surround ourselves with Bible-believing evangelical Christians, but it is like, I mean, think about all the major denominations out there that are just, they're just bleeding out members and they're just like hollow shells of what they used to be. That's like the end result of theological liberalism, Mm -hmm. where you strip away from Christianity the Christ, basically. You strip away the miracles, you strip Mm -hmm. away the... Um, the the literal aspects of it that this was literally God incarnate from a virgin birth that did actual miracles that died and rose again liberal Christianity rejects all of that which is which is really why it shouldn't be called Christianity at all because that is what makes Christianity Christianity but I think that on a large scale the work of the liberal the, of the liberal Christian you know, textual criticism type people of the last 200 years that have been attacking that biblical veracity, I think it's been destructive to our culture. uh, A good friend of mine talks about the Enlightenment Mm -hmm. and how the Enlightenment was absolutely, it just gutted Christianity because it it caused people to think in terms of science instead of, Mm -hmm. you know, there are things that maybe are beyond our ability to understand. Exactly, you know, it's like we've, the Enlightenment taught us that everything should be able to be compartmentalized, categorized, and understood. And so we have this, like, enormous amount of spiritual pride as people when we don't realize, we don't know a percent of, you know, we don't know one percent of anything, really. I mean, it's like, we, what we don't know is just, like, staggering compared to this little tiny bit that we have discovered. So the only thing I would push back on that is that while... You know, the day-to-day person on the street, you probably are right. They're not going to be familiar with that argument. They are going to be familiar with the argument of, I don't know, I believe in science. Or, you know, I, I believe in a rational world, not your irrational stuff. And they'll throw a bone. Uh, they'll, they'll throw you a bone. He was a very virtuous man, very moral, mm-hmm. high ethics, uh, a great teacher. And so we'll give you that. And... Um, you know, instead of going, instead of understanding what Bertrand Russell was talking about, you know, they, they totally, they don't even consider that. Here, here's a man who, who lived in Palestine teaching what he taught, but he also said he was God. You know, and they kind of forget about that yeah. part, too. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think C.S. Lewis addressed that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, here's the man, you can, you, are you going to call someone who calls himself God, are you going to call him a good person? Are you going to call him wise? Are you going to call him all these things, all these positive attributes, when he's claiming to be God? Mm-hmm. You know, and they kind of forget that too. You know, they sure. won't bring that up to you. It's like you know, everything else. He, he says he's God, so everything else, you know, the credibility just flies out the window. Yeah, I just think it's interesting because I, I, you know, the liar, lunatic lord, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, position. Uh, of you, you can't you can't really have it, it's one of those three it's yeah. not really it's yeah. not really like negotiable on that matter um, but yeah I hadn't really thought about it when you were talking about Joe there I hadn't really thought about how Unitarian 
really kind of just very loose uh, theological compass. Yeah, how how this how this is sort of maybe one of those dead roots we're talking about, where it start. That's where you start seeing some of that death coming from. Is okay. Well, let's just go ahead and erode that part. Let's erode the credibility of Christ in the area of eschatology, and then all of a sudden you just start kind of unraveling things. Which, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah. If you if you lose one part of the truth of Scripture, the rest of it. If you could just take out Jesus, you just do get rid of the resurrection. You get rid of the deity. You get rid of you know any of those areas, and then all of a sudden the whole the whole thing. Yeah, I mean he called himself the cornerstone for a reason, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm the cornerstone of this thing. Like okay, right? So let's go ahead and just if you get one fault fault in that, <clears throat> the whole building comes down with it. So, yeah. so Joe, are you referring to RC as your good friend? Because you know he basically just was like, yeah. So the Enlightenment basically. The last two hundred years, this is where all the attacks <laughs> yeah. have been coming from. <laughs> you know him. You're, That's you're, right. You're, 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 you're you're friend yeah. about the enlightenment. That's true. He did say that. Didn't he? I was yeah, like, oh. <laughs> RC, maybe I wasn't listening very closely. I see. <laughs> yeah, no, he he does talk about the enlightenment a lot. I think, mm-hmm. and uh, because there was this such a push to question all of the authorities of scripture mm-hmm. and all the you know anything that couldn't be proven in our finite minds, right. you know, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to call into question this because, mm-hmm. oh, you can't prove that. And it's yeah. like, oh, well, what happened to the last, you know, 1600 years of history uh, since Christ, you know, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting. One interesting thing to me is that I don't know, and maybe it's just because I haven't dug deep enough, is I don't know any older Christian leaders to have taught anything or much clear with clarity on eschatology. Mm. I mean, are there any other church, early church mm. founders that were, you know, had given us information? As like, to an what they, like an Thomas Aquinas? Yeah, like or a, yeah. Aquinas did, yeah. Augustine did. I mean, they all did, but it was, it, they were varied as well. You know, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah, so I guess. Who was influencing them? Some of that is interesting. I haven't really looked into that before. Right. So it kind of makes me think, just thinking sure. about, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, the Enlightenment really eroded a lot of uh, uh, what we believe and maybe that credibility of Christ. And so calls into question some of these things. Well, what shoot? What did they believe? You know, back in the three hundreds. You know, or you know what? I don't know if any of you guys have ever read N.T. Wright, and he he is really like kind of like a dangerous guy to read because mm-hmm. he has some awesome stuff. I've only yeah. I've and some read really somebody gave us an N.T. Wright snippets. book, and I think I read it part way through, and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> if, if it's the guy, I'm yeah, I could be wrong. So his wheelhouse, his <clears throat> where he's really strong in is his first century, like first century, um, understanding what was going on in the first century. And one of the arguments that he makes in defense of the veracity of scripture, which I love that RC is like setting out to defend scripture and defend Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the arguments that he sets out is that, um, with, so with the enlightenment, you get this, uh, kind of line about the past that, people before the enlightenment were all a bunch of like superstitious hicks that didn't know anything and worship, you know, just mm-hmm. worship the angry gods and, you know, the gods of the trees and all that. And, and they didn't understand anything. And like, and like one of the things that uh, N.T. Wright defends is that the people of the first century understood death. 
very, very well. Mm-hmm. And they knew that dead people never came back to life again. <laughs> and so when people would die, there was, there was a finality about that. And, and there was no thoughts that people ever came to life again. And so the fact that out of the first century, a time period that was not known for superstition surrounding resurrection, would come this you know, world-changing idea of resurrection adds to its veracity. It doesn't take away from it. And that the people that came before us were not the superstitious. We're, they were no more superstitious than we are right now. We are incredibly superstitious right now. I mean, like, as a people in the United States and in the world, we are so superstitious. And, and our superstition surrounds, like, well, what do the scientists say? And, you know, you know our lords and saviors of the scientists have to agree on something before we can, before we can believe in it. And so I think that going back to what you were saying with the Enlightenment, the, this has been an attack for forever. You know, people have been attacking this forever. But in that last 200 years from the Enlightenment, it is, it is kind of come, it's kind of taken maybe a different angle, which is to attack the rationalistic nature of Christianity, which, as G.K. Chesterton would say, you can't have anything rationalistic if Christianity isn't rational. Mm-hmm. Basically, re- Christianity is the definition defines of reason. It defines yeah. reason, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's chronological snobbery is what that is. When you have this perception of the intelligence of individuals yeah. mm-hmm. from yeah. an era gone by, and you work under the assumption that they're just so substantially different than where you are now. I mean, that, that's, a, yeah. that's a level of hubris that is... Um, right. Yeah, the arrogance. Just to, just to label yourself enlightened is, <laughs> you know, right off the bat you go, mm, okay, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really wild with the, and I feel like in that one sense, since we're living in the information age, we actually, there's been like a great darkening, so to speak, because the inf, like people are not computers and just giving us lots of information doesn't, isn't actually useful at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, it actually like breaks down our ability to process things. And so as people get more information, they actually, it seems like we actually, it's like, it's like we actually get dumber. Um, Everybody dabbles in everything. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say earlier. We, we we doubt. Yeah, I was gonna say earlier too when you set right. up the alignment and how we were giving uh, um, a scientific end to everything. One thing that I've seen and I've heard spoken of too is the idea that we're kind of coming back around to the idea of we are realizing how much we don't know and there are a lot more things that well, you can explain everything with science. Well, now science starting to go. Uh, we can't explain these things, and so people are starting to. I think have a little bit of a circling back to, you know, it might sound superstitious, but science can't explain it either. So let's start having this conversation again. So that, I think that's one thing that's kind of refreshing from the Enlightenment until now is you're seeing kind of a circling back on that. It seems like. Like on our ideas of gender, you know, science has nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. it wasn't way to observe really. <laughs> it, it wasn't that long ago when, when they wanted to have a debate, let's say at a uh, college or something, when they want to have a debate about the existence of God, they, they got a scientist and they got a theologian. And they would debate. And you can, they don't do that anymore. Because the scientists are, are going, we can't explain this. So now, they, now who debates them is philosophers. Right, right. Because they don't have any really dog in the fight. I mean, it's just, <laughs> they just kind of can go for it. 
and they don't need to prove anything. They don't need yeah. to really stand on anything. They can just, as long as they sound philosophical and erudite and, and all of that, they're good to go. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's been a big change. You know, Francis Collins, who mapped the human genome, is a Christian now. Mm -hmm. And came, came out of all that intense work of mapping the human genome, going, there's, 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 there's no way. way. There's too much. There's no <laughs> way. Yeah. This it's makes no too much way. sense. The primor primor primordial ooze ain't going to cut it anymore. Yeah. You, know? Yeah. you know, the fact that there's all these amino acids just floating around at random. Well, well, you know, it could, we could do it, you know, and I, I think the, the, the math is astronomical. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, But still, explain to me RNA and messenger RNA and DNA. Explain how that came about. Well, if you want sands of design, yeah. If you want fun, that's one I picked up from Ligonier. It's the signature in the cell. Have you read that? I don't know. I haven't. That is a yeah. You got to get your your anatomy and microbiology and what's that? Is that B? No, it's um. He was there. He even signed the book. You were there. I'm trying to remember who it was again. Signature in the cell. Signature in the cell. If you Google, you'll see. Which year was that? So I don't remember. Oh, it's been a while. Um, at least like six, seven years ago. Um, anyway, but he has a whole uh, chapter devoted talking about... Oh, Myers. Myers, yeah, there you go. Um, he has a whole chapter talking about how RNA is supposed to work, and then he actually has, I think it's chapter 17, and remember that, was um, just talking about the sheer math of chance and probability mm -hmm. and how like having one amino acid be formed. And when you, you would get yeah. done reading that, and you just go... There's no way. Yeah. And so we've tried to do, I know uh, recently we just did this with our kids. We keep bringing up examples. Like I know you guys talking about watching TV or uh, watching something they kind of make fun of it. We've been doing the same thing where um, like our kids were messing around in the woods the other day and they're making this like dirt track kind of thing and they're putting these uh, sticks down. And I was walking my daughter and I go, hey, so uh, you see these sticks, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Does it seem like they just kind of fell here? Does it seem like somebody put them there? You know, just trying to put those yeah, ideas you know, in people's minds yeah. because, right. mm -hmm. you know, you start looking at the design, you realize there's no, the, the chance just goes, but Meyer, if you read that chapter uh, 17, whew, it's heady stuff, but it's good. And you know, if you change the amino acid on the sixth position of the beta chain of the hemoglobin molecule, you know what you get? You get sickle cell. I mean, that's how yeah. Yeah, detailed you know, God is, cell. God just has it down. Mm -hmm. You know, one one amino acid. But we'll see what scientists will do with that. And that's why I appreciated that book was that they'll say, well, it's chance. But it just comes down to if you give it enough chances, like we roll the dice enough, we'll get it to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And he just blow. He said, oh, yeah. I remember one. He said, if you were to take a uh, hundred needles and you drop them, they would all fall and land on top of each other. Okay, well that's that's possible, but is it probable? Everybody looks at and goes, no, there's no way. I mean, you have one. Yeah. Mathematically impossible. Right. And so it's mathematically possible, but it's not probable. But, yeah. 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 Highly, highly improbable. Yeah, I think yeah. back to the comment about the, uh, um, you know, who is debating who, I think that one of the things that um, somebody who took quite a few science courses in college was that um, there's a really big push or a move away from the um, the wide implication that science has. I think a lot of people who are in areas of astrophysics or in areas of biology, they 
they have a mechanism that helps to sort of explain how something works, but the implication of it is to be left to philosophers. And I think they kind of like, like, hey, we found our place here and we're gonna step back because you're trying to impose a meaning on something that we're just going to look at it as just completely neutral. And that's why you get somebody like Christopher Hitchens, who was a philosopher that just sort of spent much of his time railing against uh, Christianity. Um, But, I mean, you you had scientists, too. Richard Dawkins is notorious for it, or Stephen Jay Gould was another guy that was notorious for um, sort of the the evangelization or evangelizing uh, an atheistic position. But often what they would do is they would just simply, they would take and they'd say, okay, we have this mechanism that helps us to understand how the universe works and we have this, and now I'm going to give you a why. And they're going, they're going to impose meaning on that mm-hmm. sort of thing, and so I think that, um, uh, which is which is dangerous then, because then you're, then it's based on the that individual's interpretation, and they're using a, uh, a logical fallacy of an appeal to authority, and the authority is themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the the authority as well. I've I've made these observations. You know, that's the that's the the, the downside though of having the sciences. Uh, you know, we, we read in Colossians that we're not to be taken captive by any deceptive philosophies or human traditions that are based on man and on Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need Christian scientists that are out there giving people the why. Christian scientists? Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Christian scientists. We need some Christians who are in science. <laughs> but, yeah, I know. But the... Because... Science only makes sense and can only be understood within the context of its creator. Otherwise, we end up worshiping. We end up worshiping Gaia. Gaia is Mother Earth, and that's why we have, you know, uh, kind of insane ecological Green Party people that want to save all the, you know, save all the lab rats and that kind of thing because they worship the create the creature rather than the creator, and because they've been trained their whole life that. You know, science has disproved all of this. Science has gotten rid of all that archaic, all that archaic superstition. And that is kind of true, but it replaced it with a different type of superstition, where you know you blame the weather for everything, mm-hmm. or you, you know you you blame society for everything. You blame you, it's always somebody else's fault. Uh, that's just one of many ways in which we are superstitious. But we need we need Christians who are, you know, like I mean, you think about like Isaac Newton. And what an amazing scientist he was. And it was all, you know, he was also an amazing Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, the yeah. way he just, he was... He wrote, like, several books on theology. Exactly, and yeah. right? Somebody, somebody asked me one time about science, and about God and science, and I can't remember, God, I wish I could remember what they asked. But I said, listen, God is not opposed to truth in, in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Any truth. He's not opposed to it. <laughs> Or that. So <laughs> science is fine, mm-hmm. you know. It, oh, yeah. there, there's no war there. There's no just. There's no natural animosity to truth. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you know you've calculated two plus two is four or whatever, yeah. God's not opposed. Well, and I, I think when we adhere to like solid observable type of science, that's not conjecture. Um, if anything, it should help us have a better understanding of who God is, anyway. So that's like, you know, we should desire to, to 
endeavor to make these discoveries mm-hmm. because the more we discover, the more we go, wow, isn't God just unfathomably cool? And there's yeah. a conflation, too, behind certain sciences between the sciences. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like, well, because we are really good at rocket science and can build bridges and make submarines that can stand underwater forever, evolutionists must know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, that's an entirely different and completely theoretical branch of science where nobody, nobody cares if you're wrong. Mm-hmm. You can't build a bridge and be wrong. You have to be right. Yeah. And, and I think that we look at, we just lump it all as science. We mm-hmm. lump everybody as science. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, you know, that's where the, the dangerous, the hard science is where you have you know, the right answer fields. That's the stuff where if, if we can get more Christians, our, our sons and daughters, to go into these fields, specifically mm-hmm. our sons, mm-hmm. with the idea that Scripture is your foundation for the standard truth. Mm-hmm. Your standard definition of truth is found in Scripture. And everything that you learn out in the scientific world, it is subservient to Scripture. Mm-hmm. It is subservient to what God has revealed to us. Mm-hmm. Because science is only as... It's only as good as we are, and we are not good. You know, we will we will mm-hmm. t- twist things. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the theological realm, in a more contemporary the, that Jesus seminar business. I mean, these are the- theologians allegedly who who endeavor to determine what what was real in the Bible, what was fabricated, and what might have been. Mm-hmm. This was definitely this was definitely out of line. You know, and I think I think the Jesus seminar didn't they use the marbles or the beads or something, the colored beads, for the different verses or portions of the Bible. There's a they would vote on whether or not this particular portion of Scripture was true. And if you thought it was true, you put in a certain color bead. And if you thought it could have been right, you put in a different color. And then they would tally them up and they try to quantitate the veracity of the Bible that way. I mean. Through voting? Through voting. I mean, you know, and you can, you know, look at Bart Ehrman out at Duke. I mean, that guy is, you know, he's he's teaching religion and he's supposed to be a Christian. You know, he's Oprah's guy, but he's he's totally off the rails. You know, there's a couple other guys. I mean, you think you think of somebody like Andy Stanley. My goodness, some of the things that he's come up with lately, not not good. Yeah. So, I mean, you have scientists, and there's some, the philosophers, we almost expect it from. We expect it from Hitchens and Dawkins and those mm-hmm. guys. Bertrand Russell, you know, David Hume, all of that. We expect it from them. Right. But some of these folks who are supposed to be, we thought were allies, you know, we're turning our heads going, oh, well, what's going on here? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, going back to uh, R.C.'s introductory words, though, there is that he is making, I think he's setting up, because like you were mm-hmm. saying, Mike, it was, it was yeah. mostly introduction. Yeah. He's setting up the fact that if you are, if you are uh, investigating Christianity based off of the claims of Christ, you are going to come away, and, and you're kind of going with what the general theological feeling for those claims were. So, you know, in a dispensational, premillennial world, people, you know, the idea that Jesus is, you know, that these things that, you know, in Mark 13 and Matthew uh, 10, the fact that those things, it's believed within the dispensational world that those things haven't taken place yet, um, that gets out there. People understand that that's the, that's like the, under, that's the, 
the theological reasoning. Because if you're even if you're Bertrand Russell, you could be a he was who was a genius. You still are going to come to this not knowing what people think about it until you find out. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to come. He's going to see. Well, people think that you know somehow the the imminency imminency of what Jesus was talking about. It just wasn't as imminent as we thought it was. It's like, you know, because it's, it's still imminent. Even, you know, we're reading this right now. These things must shortly take place. Well, that must mean that we're in the end times kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's setting up the argument that somehow what Jesus, what Jesus was saying, we've totally missed how it was already fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And, and not in a full preterist way. I know he's not going to argue that. I know it's, but a good portion of this has been fulfilled. A good portion mm-hmm. of it has been. Absolutely. And you know, there's tension between when Jesus talked, when the signs of the times and then, you know, what he's, what he's predicting, there's, there's that tension there. And I, I know, you know, my wife and I were talking, because we both watched the RC thing, I think we were talking yesterday morning, and, and I said, you know, right now, I, I just have to try to, you know, I need to take something away from all of this, on this, the beginning of this journey into this eschatology, you know, not not worry about a label or anything, but what what does my Lord, what does my Savior want from me? What does He want? Where does He want me right this minute? And I, it's okay. I said, listen, here's here's the thing, you know, because there seems to be there seems to be this thing where where I haven't seen this, this, and this, so I don't believe the return of the Lord is imminent. But yet at the same time, Jesus warned us, he, he's, you know, we got the tension between these signs and these warnings that he gives us, that we're supposed to be alert and we're supposed to be looking. And I said, okay, I said, listen, if I knew Jesus was coming next Wednesday, I know Lesto, I know me, and I know I would goof around till <laughs> Tuesday night, and then I would start trying to make my peace. And I, you know, obviously I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but you know what I mean? Jesus said, we gotta be ready. And I'm gonna you know, tell you, you can, you can get off way off track on mm-hmm. trying to figure out what your label is versus what mm-hmm. the Word of God is mm-hmm. telling us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is really important. It is. In fact, there's a beatitude right off the bat in the revelation of Christ. Yeah. You know, uh, and so, but I know, man, if I if I knew the, for specifically the Lord was coming on a certain day, I kind of know. Yeah. You know, I'd like to think I'd be. I wouldn't, but I. You know, I know. Yeah. Who, I know human nature. And I know sure. how we operate. Procrastinate later. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, one of the things you said last week that I've been kind of just thinking over is kind of, uh, you know, how does this, how does this matter? Like, what, what's the, how does this change anything? And I meant to bring it tonight, and I forgot, but I got in the mail. I think it was yesterday. Something from my from the Seventh Day Adventists. Oh, did you? Did you <laughs> I got yeah, I got one the, too. The big thing booklet and it's uh, like you know, the front covers in flames and <laughs> yep. the world's on fire. It's like lions and clouds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> man. Picture and I was just I was just down that rabbit hole too. Yeah. Rabbit hole, like I'm like ah great. I, I already dealt. I already dealt. Right, with you guys. <laughs> and the only reason why I'm pretty sure it was the Seventh Day Adventists is because it said. Um, Taken, you know, text. It said in real small print, you know, taken from the text from E.G. White or something like that. I think. Yeah. Um, but. Real but, gal. Yeah, but I I think that the reason why I, and I appreciate R.C.'s being like from the get go, like hey, I'm not going to be like over the top dogmatic on this, but at the same time, this changes who you are in a in a big way. If if you expect the world to go to hell in a handbasket. 
um, or if you expect mm-hmm. the there to be persecution, or if you expect the gospel to be triumphant, mm-hmm. if you know that's going to change how you live your life. It's going to it's going to it's kind of like what uh, Henry Ford Henry Ford said: whether you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right because your mind changes your actions. It 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 informs how you think informs what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. And so it matters not so much because I think you all need to become post-millennial or because I think you all need to become amillennial or pre-millennial, but because that's how we think it's all going to pan out is going to affect how we go out and live our life. Um, I think it was... Um, uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said that if I knew that the Lord was coming back tomorrow, I'd go plant a tree. You know, and his, his reasoning for that is because... You always want to be ready, but you also don't ever want to be caught where you, you know, you're not working within the world that God has given you. How Lindsay was told, was asked, maybe this was in last week's talk, I don't remember. How Lindsay was asked, um, why, what, you know, what was the motivation for his ministry? And he said, the Lord called me to fish, not to clean the fishbowl. And his thought there was that I don't need to worry myself about anything going on in the world outside of just saving as many people as I can. And, you know, you could say, I don't need to worry about building schools or building seminaries. I don't need to worry about what my children's 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 children, 10 generations down the road are going to be doing. I don't need to worry about any of that because Jesus is coming back either this year or next year or within 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we're, we at least know that much, right, guys? 10 years. He's going to be back in 10 years. <laughs> um, and, you know, you shouldn't build a happy, you know, you shouldn't, you should live, you shouldn't build a house that has any lasting value. You shouldn't try to build a church, you know, you shouldn't try to do any of these things. And I'm, of course, taking this to the extreme of the person who is so affected by this theology that that they're only thinking about helicoptering as many Christians out of Saigon as they can in this tiny little bit of time left that they've got. And, of course, you know, post-millennialism or amillennialism, you, you could get apathetic as well. There's, there's temptations either way, but it matters at least I think it matters because it's a type of orthodoxy that will inform how you live. Did, did Paul get on the Thessalonians a little bit about just sitting around waiting? Did he? What, was it? I'll, I'll look. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm a little uncertain about But I remember Paul Paul told the group, he said, what are you doing? Well, we're sitting waiting on the Lord. He goes, I know. <laughs> get up. You know. Right. Yeah, I keep coming back to this this verse here that that yeah, uh, twenty four thirty six out of uh, Matthew. It says, "Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, uh, nor the Son, but the Father only." Which you know, if that's the case, then maybe you know it says nor the Son. So then Jesus didn't know, so he said it wrong. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> Going on what he said, right? You know, <laughs> joking completely, obviously he knows. But you know, I, that, that's the big one too. That whenever people bring that up, it's like, yeah, you don't. I agree um, to to a certain extent. You know, the idea that it does change how you live, um, knowing if it's you know end times or not. I think it's still. I come back to what what is yeah, like you said. Don't sit around. You know, it's easy to become complacent, um, saying, "Well, it's all figured out." The hyper Calvinism thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the other side of it too, you know, you gotta, uh, you still gotta, you know, he says, you know, God asks us to take care of this earth, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is, that's true. So, um, gardeners. we are gardeners, we're, yeah. we take, we're caretakers. Um, but yeah, how, you can always, it's always extremes, right? How far right. do we go on that? Well, you know, I, um, I better recycle this and make sure that everyone, 
yeah, to my best extent, but... Um, Get yeah. really obnoxious with people online if they don't. Re- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is helicoptering those people out. I, I like that example. You know, really, like, you should just take over six blocks of Seattle <laughs> and maybe occupy... Oh, my God. Yeah. But, you know, how much does that get in the way then? And I think that's the constant struggle, I think, as, mm. as most Christians have, of how much time do you... Uh, contribute towards mm-hmm. caretaking versus helicoptering people out versus, right. you know, and if you did, I mean, I, if I knew the end date, you know, and I said, Hey, I only have five days. I, I can guarantee I would probably be a lot more than I am now trying to be forceful with people and say, Hey, he's coming now, mm-hmm. right now. Um, and, and I, I think that would be a kind of a mm-hmm. nice part of knowing too. Um, probably would be a little bit more forceful than God would want. <laughs> you know, and, and as a thought experiment, because that it just came to me as you were saying that, you know, if we knew he was coming in five days, we would live differently, probably. Um, but if we knew he wasn't coming in for 5,000 years, what, what would that change? How does that, is, in terms of thought experiments, what does that change if we don't think, you know, if the, if the Green Party and the, and the dispensational Christians are both wrong and we actually have more than you know, 10 years left on this earth, and we've got 5,000 or 10,000 or 50,000 more years, what does that change in how we think? Yeah, it definitely does have a pragmatic implication to it. I think one of the things that, um, uh, as at least in a anecdotal and practical sense, my mind's been changed a little bit about how quickly things can happen though. Like, it just, it, if somebody would have asked me December 2019 that the United States was going to force you to, through social pressure, to abandon your First Amendment right to freedom of assembly, I would have been like, really? That quick? That, really? That's, gonna, that's actually going to work? Like, and then all of a sudden just, boom. March, what, like March 14th, 15th, all of a sudden it's like, hey, everybody, you can't go out and about, you can't do these things, and just, whoa. Uh, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but it took about two and a half, three weeks to get a population of 350 plus million people to, in general, comply with that, right? And to all of a sudden just like give up a, uh, a constitutional right, which is subservient to, <laughs> it, it, it's, it is well beneath uh, the inerrant word of God, mm-hmm. right? So I kind of think about like, you know, with end, time, with end times stuff and, you know, the imminency portion of it, um, again, she's gonna go into this stuff, but maybe, I, maybe we just aren't aware of how quickly things can change like just, both ways though because you look yeah. at the day of Pentecost man 3,000 yeah, people yeah exactly they squat they're saved like what and then they just move out into all the city and they're taking over the they're taking Nineveh. over Jerusalem yeah Nineveh the same way Nineveh was supposed to go out and all of a sudden boom great change great yeah. example you know, and I'm thinking every generation has had the same mentality that, that we're the one we're the generation mm-hmm. where the Lord is mm-hmm. going to come back I mean I think it's kind of a natural thing for us because mm-hmm. we do have a strong desire for it and um so I, I think about our, our predecessors, the, people, the shoulders we're standing on, thinking the same thing we're thinking. I mean, we look around, and you know, one of the things I one of the things I got out of listening to RC and, and some other folks too is, you know, you can become obsessed with this, where mm-hmm. where you're totally 
No, no, you, you're, you're just almost inert. I mean, you, you can build a whole like, denomination around it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You could, absolutely. Or, or like Sam Storms was, was talking about how, or maybe it was Sam, I don't remember, but he was uh, making the argument of like, it's exciting if you think like, man, my generation really means something. Like, we're, this is the yeah. end times. Like, mm-hmm. got my newspaper here, got my Bible here, they're totally coinciding. Wow, there's wars, there's rumors of wars. Oh, earthquakes, you know, mm-hmm. this must be the end times. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, we've never had earthquakes before. Yeah, or wars. Or wars. Or famine. Or famine. <laughs> or sickness. Yeah. No pestilence at all. Right. Huh? Yeah. Hmm. I'm pretty sure it's going to be our generation last. At least mine. You're, you're going to be way past it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's kicking in, man. I feel it. It's kicking in. Let's <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, I think I'm just joking, but I, 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 I agree with right. you though. I think a lot of people do, they're so centered on that. They think, hey, it's going to be, it's got to be us. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, really. No. I mean, we yeah. should kind of think that way. Yeah. Well, if we, if we were going to live with that imminence that like you were talking, mm-hmm. I think with it, living in such a way like he could come at any minute. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't hurt to have that view of, man, it might be next week, shoot, you know. To have that kind of mindset. I read something, um, I almost want to say it was Thomas Jackson, the Confederate general, um, but I could be wrong, who was in a letter to somebody talking about the craziness of the Civil War, said, surely our Lord is coming quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, and that's been a while ago. You, you know, know it's faith in, in Hebrews right. 11, right? Mm-hmm. It's the substance of things hoped for. Mm-hmm. The evidence of things yeah. unseen. I mean, we're, we, we have hope. And that's, you know, that's where we're all at. I mean, in, in, in you were saying, you were saying last that you didn't see a real problem with thinking that Jesus could come back any minute. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. If, if Jesus came back tonight, I would rejoice with the rest of the, with the rest of the body of believers. I think that the, where it comes down to though is where do you think the gospel is going? Mm-hmm. Is the gospel going out in victory, or is the gospel like hemmed in by all of these, you know, satanic mm-hmm. forces around it? We're getting kind of smaller and smaller, and more persecuted. And, and I agree that there are ups and downs to the spread of the gospel. But the gospel is, I mean, it's it's out there, and it's yeah. it's a uh, it's there's a lot of us, and it's not just a remnant. Now, it's probably significant. You know, it's obviously significantly smaller than the overarching population. But it's had tremendous victory mm-hmm. in the world. And it will continue to have tremendous victory, at least I believe it will. And, you know, there will be nations that rise and fall. America is going to be one of them that is going to, that has risen and is probably, is probably falling. You know, or at least doing some type of, de- it's declining in some way right now. <laughs> but uh, who knows if that's a permanent decline. But, uh, but is, the, is the gospel just like, a last-ditch effort to grab as many people at the end, and it's largely been, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to make a straw man, but it would almost seem like it was largely a failure. We take the one, the one time where Jesus says that few will find the path to eternal life, we we assume that to be the case for eternity, that few will ever find the path to eternal life. Um, that's a different discussion. What Jesus was talking about there, but that's really the one of the few spots you see in Scripture where the gospel appears to be defeated or it appears to not have an overarching you know, effect mm-hmm. of the nations will be converted. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, 
uh, RC, when you look at all 12 of these, you're going to see that whatever, however you see it, it it's going to fit in something that we're, we're presented with, you know, mm -hmm. the three, three mil, uh, mil, and all that business. Okay. You know, and so I, I think sometimes we get, we can't see the forest because the trees are so thick around us. You know, we kind of get bogged down, but I, he's going he's gonna to go, when he starts to describe some, some of these different um, uh, perspectives or her, uh, interpretations, we're going to see, see what yeah. you're talking about, Joe, honestly. Cool. It's pretty cool. You yeah. know, you go, boy, this seems to really fit right now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, are we looking at a snapshot or are we kind of looking at more right. of a, a video or whatever? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I wanted to tell you guys about was, so I've been recording all of these, of course, and I was just putting them up on my own website, joestop.org, and I wanted to, to have something a little bit more official that would kind of align more with the idea of like a church plant, um, if, if that is ever something that we get to, Lord willing, get to come to. Uh, and so I created a website that's just lewiscounty.church, so instead of .com, it's .church, lewiscounty.church. Um, right now, the only thing that's really up there are the talks, so this will, this is the 13th talk, and I'll put it up there you know, sometime later this week. Um, but if you guys uh, have any thoughts of things that we should put on there, or if you guys want to share that with people, then it doesn't feel like weird, like you're sharing somebody's like family blog. <laughs> it's just that that's the only thing that's on there are these talks. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll text the, the link out to everybody, to the text thread there. But, okay. uh, are you looking for any blogs or anything like that? What's that? Are you looking for any uh, blog type? Articles, articles everything, sure. Things? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, right now it's... It's just a resource to kind of gather people who might want to be a part of a Reformed Church here. Cool. Um, I'll and browse some Benny Hinn articles and see which ones <laughs> yeah. Osteen, maybe? Uh, maybe, Osteen. yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there was a patient watching him the other day on TV, and I was just like, oh, turn it off. It was so bad. <laughs> the power of positive thinking. Yeah. Oh, man. And the, the, wherever, wherever he was teaching, there was a huge crowd of people. 52,000 people in yeah. this church. Wow. I was just oh, like, that's huge. That's that's huge. Wow. Like sheep to the slaughter. <laughs> <laughs>